1: Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and Roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks. I'm Matt Wilson, host of Rhythm Roots. Thanks for checking out our podcast. I'm here on Insights to help introduce our guest today, Arlo McKinley. Our program director Sam Shansky caught up with Arlo over video call while Arlo hung outside a tattoo shop near Cincinnati called Designs by Dana where his drummer was getting some work done. Arlo's been living in Cincinnati for 41 years. He grew up in the church, drifted into the punk rock scene, but later developed into a singer-songwriter. In this talk, Sam and Arlo discuss his 2020 LP release, Die Midwestern, what it's like working with Oh Boy Records and how he felt when he met John Prine, as well as what it was like to record at Sam Phillips recording service with Matt Ross Spang as producer and engineer. Let's listen in talking with Arlo
2: McKinley. Arlo, you said you're hanging out at a tattoo shop. Uh, tell us where you are.
3: I'm, uh, down in Covington, Kentucky, which is right across the, uh, right across the Ohio river, right across from Cincinnati at, a uh, Dana's, uh, designs by Dana tattoo shop here in Cincinnati, where I get a lot of my work done. And, uh, drummer is actually in there now getting some work done and uh i came out and had a seat in my car for a little bit uh, to have a little talk but yeah we uh i come down here quite often just hang out at the shop anyway it's kind of like a little barbershop type deal we come and just talk dumb stuff with each other quite often i got all my good friends work at this shop so uh yeah just come down do this and uh enjoying the day trying to so far so good
2: well thank you for taking some time to talk with me a little bit here um you said you're outside of cincinnati uh is that where you're living these days
3: yeah yeah i'm in cincinnati uh been here yeah my entire life still here Uh, i've tried to move a few times tried to go out to texas a while back that's been some years but i don't know every time i leave something just always kind of Brings me back here. I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, I'd say it's more the people than anything, uh, missing friends. But yeah, Cincinnati is home has been for forty one years now. So uh, she treats me all right. It's pretty good.
2: So, what was your family like growing up?
3: uh Family life. I grew up in a and somewhat a somewhat like a. Sh- not super strict, but we grew up like in a Baptist church. We were a church going family. We were uh, just kind of your basic, uh, normal, I think kind of Midwest working class family. A lot of my, uh, like my grandfathers and, uh, and well, grandparents on both sides moved up here from like central, kind of central Southern Kentucky and work at like the GM plants and stuff up here. And um, so that's sort of how we ended up being up here in Cincinnati. Other besides that, um, if it wasn't for that, I've probably been, I would have probably been born in Kentucky somewhere, but uh, we just stayed. They worked up here and uh, retired from there. And that's kind of the story of how we ended up here. So um, yeah, grew up in a, church and it's sort of your normal i think kind of your normal midwest upbringing uh and then the church is where i found music at started singing in a church at an early age like around eight or nine and um so yeah it actually uh was a big influence on where i am today for sure it's the first first time i realized that's what i wanted to do and it's what i've wanted to do ever since then. So pretty lucky on that end so
2: so at eight or nine you're in the church you're you're singing gospel music um presumably um yep. some yep. hymns um yep. what's what's yeah. your favorite what's your favorite
3: hymn oh man uh top oh, two man. maybe that's top two uh,
2: you still remember right
3: yeah i yeah i still i still sing a lot of them uh old rugged cross is good uh, amazing grace is good uh Peace in the Valley, um, a lot of them, a lot of these old songs, you know, I, li- I like going back to those songs. And I, um, I, I still sing them often, especially if I'm at home and just kind of trying to keep my voice up uh, and stuff like that. I'll still sing those songs. And even in my songwriting, um, because I wasn't in like a Baptist church, like with a choir, it was more like there would be almost like groups kind of sort of like bluegrass groups in a way like a group of four people would come up and sing some songs and stuff like that and very similar to like classic like the formula of classic country or something like three chords and stuff like that so i took a lot from that not just singing but also like songwriting wise so um i still love that music and it's the first music too that i ever heard that i think i felt something from and i don't know if it was just i say it often i don't know now being a little older if it was you know if it was you know tied to religion stuff that i was feeling or if it was just seeing people being moved by music or what it was but um i think that's the first time i saw that music can be a lot more than just just uh noise it can actually be uh it can actually do stuff for people personally so it it was a it's definitely what got me interested in playing music overall as a whole for sure
2: that was at eight or nine but by you know 11 or 12 what were you listening to at that point you know middle school kind of those years things change right
3: yeah definitely um and that that's around the time that we started not really going uh to church as often because I mean, we would go Saturday night, Sunday morning. I mean, it, it took up the weekends. But then, as we got a little older, I'm the youngest of uh, I'm the youngest of three, all boys. Uh, so, and I had two older brothers that were like at that time. We're all three years apart, so they're bringing home records by like early Metallica records and Iron Maiden records and stuff like that. So I'm getting into kind of like some metal stuff sort of around that time. But then also my dad had a, and still does, had a pretty good um, classic country and like obscure like bluegrass record collection that I would also listen to. So it really depended on who was home. (laughs) If my brothers weren't home, I'd be in their room going through all their records and finding out, you know, just looking at record covers and seeing what looks good if they were home i'd be listening to my dad's stuff so at around around 13 12 13 is when i really started kind of listening to a lot of different a lot of different stuff and um yeah around around that age but it was a lot of metal came in around that time which then led the like the punk scene and hardcore scene and then for my teen years it was sort of very heavily into that entire like like that whole scene um still listening to country and bluegrass and stuff like that but just more involved and like a punk scene and, and that so that that took up a lot of the uh of my teen years
2: and so this is like the mid 80s um early 90s yeah early 90s so you're listening on like uh, vinyl and or like cassettes or what are you listening yeah, to? Cassettes
3: and vinyl. A lot of vinyl back then. I and mean, it was like, yeah, a lot of vinyl back then before, before it went away for a little while because vinyl kind of went away and now is back, of course, which right. is good. Yeah, that's it was usually vinyl and uh, cassette. Right? And I still remember the Christmas that we uh, all got CD players and we were amazed by this new <laughs> technology of of cds and we all got cd players and like stacks of cds and i don't know i just thought it was thought it was crazy but yeah we would listen to records a lot and it used to i would just pick something i remember hearing uh ride the lightning for the first time ever and i picked that out just because of the album cover and like the back and maybe like the, it, or there's a picture of them somewhere on there it might be the inside sleeve but i was looking at it like these look like guys from my neighborhood like <laughs> making music and that was like the first time i was like okay you don't have to because you know you have bands like poison and motley crew and all these bands that are like big and flashy and then i see this band made up of guys and i'm like man i see these dudes buying beer down at the corner store every (laughs) every other you know day or whatever so i think that was like my first introduction to you don't have to be it doesn't have to be theatrical to really do stuff that's when i saw like anyone can kind of make a band and uh so that was a big influence for me at that time but yeah uh late 80s early 90s is when i was like doing the listening to a bunch of stuff and getting introduced to all that. And then in the early nineties is when I kind of got into like the punk scene with my older brothers and sneaking into shows, being underage and stuff like that.
2: And were you writing songs by this point?
3: No, no, I was, uh, I was still singing, uh, as much as possible. I started, uh, well, writing songs in a sense, I'd started probably around the age of 14 or 15. We started a little, like punk band thing that never really turned into much, but I was writing songs then, but in no way was I a a songwriter. That didn't come until much later in life. Actually, until I started taking it serious, uh, or I didn't start taking it serious until much later, probably like 30, 31 or something. So I haven't really been writing, writing songs for very long, really, compared to a lot of people. Um,
2: When you did start writing songs, when you did start writing songs, um, you know, you you tend to deal with some tough themes. I'm wondering if if it just started out the gate like that or if you sort of developed to that point.
3: I think it started um, when I started writing and kind of started taking it serious. That's just sort of what I wrote about, because at that time it was. um, Like I said, it was a little later and I was just writing about things that were. That I was seeing here in Cincinnati, and um, just situations that uh, I don't know, like drug abuse, and um, you know, losing friends and to, to drugs, and just relationships and everything. I've always just kind of, I've always just written about my experience. I've never been one I say it often, I've never been one that can just sit down and say, I'm gonna write a song about this and come up with an idea. It's always something that I've gone through or um have, you know, experienced firsthand. So um it kind of started that way. Like Bag of Pills is the second song I ever wrote and it made the new record and that song's like almost almost fifteen years old, somewhere around there. And so it's kind of had that same theme ever since then. And uh, that's just the only way that I really knew how to write. because I didn't really know how to be a songwriter. I don't know if there's a rule book to it or not, but uh, I don't know. I just kind of wrote what I was going through, I think. And I think that's what I still do.
2: Well, it comes through very strong on your new album, uh, Die Midwestern, uh, through Oh Boy Records. Fantastic record. Um that's where a bag of peel- pills can be found, um, along with several other really, really um, you know, honest and, and strongly written songs. Um diving in on, on Die Midwestern, um, first of all the musicians on that record are showing a lot of restraint and like that in that way that's always complimented, you know, like oh, less is more and finding the groove yeah. and everything and it's just really, really from start to finish, it accomplishes um A really really accessible sound a really um, emotional tone um, some great imagery and details that really evoke you know the time and the place and everything so um, the title track Die Midwestern you say another Cincinnati Saturday night and I hate what that has become I'm talking about Cincinnati Um, And there's lots of uh, should I stay or should I go vibes happening on this record. Um, Where does that come from for you? What are the observations of Cincinnati at this point in your life that have uh, Um, inspired that?
3: that, Yeah, and I think you hit it pretty good. I think the entire record is kind of, if there's a narrative to the record, I think it is that figuring out. Am I staying? Am I going? If I do go, where am I going? And with who? And those kind of things. And it's just, uh, this set of songs is, it's pretty much the story of the last three to four years of, of my life here in Cincinnati. And, um, and especially within the last little bit, like I had lost, my, uh, I'd lost my best friend to uh, to a drug overdose, and um, I'd lost a lot of good friends just to that. And it, it's it's dealing with that a lot, and it's it's I don't know. It's kind of me questioning: Do I want to stay here? Can I deal with this anymore? But can you really run away from? situations uh, if you end up somewhere else the same situations are going to be there so it's kind of about just handling it and um, I don't know it is it's just kind of my I always say I have a love hate relationship with Cincinnati Uh, I love it because it's everything I know but I also hate it for those reasons that I mentioned it's just easy to kind of get caught up in a lot of that stuff here but at the end of the day um. even if I do, like now being 41, you know, even if I move to wherever, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Midwestern guy, so I'm going to die in Midwestern. That's sort of where the whole, that's where the title at least came from. And yeah, it's just a, the whole record is just sort of an observation, I think, of my life and of the city that I'm in and just making the choices of either... Kind of getting it together, or just settling and letting it, you know, get the best of me, and hoping that uh, I don't know, and hopes that I just stick around and make the best of uh, make the best of everything. I just think running away from it would be a little too easy in some ways. But then everything's going to catch back up with you if you don't really deal with the situations at hand. I guess if that makes sense, I don't know. That's kind of that's kind of what it is to me, I guess.
2: Thank you for sharing that. By the way, um, 2020 yeah. has been a a tough year for for everyone. Um, were you able to perform these songs for crowds and um, to get real responses and see what was working and what wasn't before um, the lockdowns and everything took place? I mean, the the album was released in August. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, August,
3: August so,
2: 14th. I mean, not to be too heavy on, you know, these these some of these themes are heavy, but a song like Die Midwestern actually seems like it would be uh, one to get the crowd actually going and kind of dancing and stuff. Like, you've got some good barroom uh, hits on there, man. Like, there's, it seems like people would have a good time at your shows, and I'm wondering if you actually have been able to test these things out yet.
3: We did. I was like, most of these songs had been around for a little bit before the uh, album came out so we we did get to go out and you know play for a little bit we did like a 20 something day tour a little bit before you know the covid 19 you know shut down and all that but since the albums came out we haven't really been able to go and and play uh and the ones we we have we've played I could count, I don't know, less than 10 times we've played, probably about six or seven and uh, times during all this, but it's still just awkward because they're, you know, distanced and, you know, and you got to do all that. But no, we haven't really been able to play how I wish we could have. Um, right. I think it would have been, you know, I don't know. I'd, you know, who knows how it would have been, but I would have liked to gone out on this record. And we were about to, which, which is... Yeah, which was just kind of crazy. Every show just sort of started falling off one by one, and then the next thing you know, the whole tour is canceled. But uh, we did—we have played these songs, most of them, out live, so a lot of people knew these songs already. Uh, who were who were already fans, um, right? They knew these songs, but we haven't really gotten to go out and get the full experience and see how people are relating to it or reacting to it um so i'm just hoping when things come back around uh whenever that is that you know people will be wanting to see it and maybe hopefully the records make an impression enough where they're you know excited to see it still and uh we'll see how it goes from there but because even these quarantine shows like you said it's you know some of those songs are songs that the tone or the theme of it may be a little (laughs) might be a little like dark or a little dreary or whatever but they are kind of upbeat songs and uh i don't know it can do some good to get some people up dancing i'm sure so and stuff like that but at these you know socially distant shows it's just you know you can't i don't know how much can you really enjoy it yeah it's just i don't know everyone says they have a good time at it i'm sure it's fun you know for people to hear you know for our fans to listen to but you know i'm sure it doesn't compare to seeing how it would be on a normal you know on a normal friday or a normal saturday or normal, whatever night but yeah it's just trying to do it the best we can
2: well for folks who are just tuning in maybe um I'm Sam Shansky, and I'm here with Arlo McKinley, uh, the mind behind Die Midwestern, the new record out now on uh, Oh Boy Records. Um, Oh Boy Records being the label of John Prine. We lost John Prine this year. Not before he got to see you play, though. We're talking about, um, you know, live shows and the live show experience. I I hear that he was able to come see you at least once, um, which must have been... Let let me hear a little bit about what that was like.
3: That was probably... It's definitely the craziest situation I've been in that music has brought me and I don't see anything probably ever topping that situation. Um, That was on a tour that I was speaking of earlier where we went out for like 20-something days. It was the first day of the tour uh, in Nashville. I'd already been in talks with Jody uh, at Old Boy and um, we had talked about working together at this point already. And I knew that uh, Fiona, John's wife, was coming out. So I was already a little nervous about that and, you know, playing in front of her for the first time. And as I'm meeting her and talking to Jody, Jody uh, says, and there's no need to introduce the guy right there next to you. And I didn't realize this entire time I'm talking to him, John Prine's less than you know three feet away from me. And I my heart, <laughs> it was just one of the craziest things. That had happened, and uh, he just sh- shook my hand, and uh, he said uh, something along the lines. I think he commented on bag of pills, and then, and then just said, "Have a good show." And this is as I'm walking to the stage uh, to go on. So no added pressure, of course. Um, and it was just one of those moments where he, I, I just I was just caught in it like I don't get really like starstruck or anything like that very easily or anything like that but I, I admit that I definitely kind of quietly fanboyed out over that situation and uh just just to know because that, that, that was the first show of the tour it was a Thursday night in Nashville and that's when you know he was everywhere at that moment like everyone was listening to tree forgiveness he was getting a lot of praise so for him to come out to a club that's not very big um and he had nowhere where he could really like hide or anything or get away from the crowd he was just a member of the crowd for so for him to come out and do that i always say is the like my biggest success so far and uh and I've all and I've also said that after that if everything would you know if everything falls apart and music's just not in the cards for me then you know I've always got that little moment right there and that's sort of uh that's enough to let me know that I was doing what I should have done and just because he he was even before the old boy talks he was a a true like inspiration and a hero of mine when it comes to music like him blaze foley uh hank senior and bob dylan i always say are like my favorite songwriters and storytellers so to have one of them you know take the time out of their day to come and see me knowing that they're gonna be hounded by people in the crowd which ended up happening i think you had to leave about halfway through the set but um jody let me know later that he enjoyed the show and then very shortly uh, after that i was signed to old boy so i think that was kind of him coming out to see if uh he thought i was worth uh moving forward with or not and uh so i'm gonna at least choose to believe that uh that everything worked out the way it was supposed to so uh I'd say I'd say I'd say we wouldn't be here now if, if that wasn't the case. So yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. It was real short. We didn't really say much to each other, but um, yeah, just the fact that he even took that time out is is amazing to me. I think it shows the uh, the kind of person that he was. I think it shows his character that he wasn't running a label just to you know put out everything just to keep putting out bands he i think he even wanted to put out music that he cared about that he liked that interested him and uh for me to even be on that list uh, amazes me every day every day I, i'm amazed by it still i don't think i'll ever get used to it but i do my best
2: a great friend of john prine's was a. Uh... Matt Ross-Spang, and Matt Ross-Spang is who you worked with on Dive Midwestern at Sam Phillips Recording Service in Memphis, Tennessee, which is uh, yep. about two miles from where I'm sitting right now, and um, All right. yeah, man, great place, great people. What was the tone of uh, that recording experience like? What was it like to be in the room during the recording sessions of Dive Midwestern?
3: That, uh, that, that would be the, uh, besides the John Prime incident, that would be the second craziest thing i've ever done (laughs) musically um and now me and now matt and i are are really good friends we talk often and uh it it was i was so nervous going in doing that because i hadn't recorded with like a studio band before or anything like that but it didn't take you know 30 minutes for me to feel at home and to know that the, uh, the people that he gathered to make this record um were all on board completely and wanted to just make, help me make the best record that I could. And uh, it, it was, I don't know, it, it was just crazy hearing some of the stories. That was like some of the best parts of the day were like the downtimes of Matt, you know, telling us crazy stories about what had gone on in there and some crazy Jerry Lee Lewis stories and, people pulling pistols and this and that. That place just has so much history in it. And um, I didn't even know that that was where he recorded out of first when I first got interested in Matt, because we had threw some names around for producers and uh, his name came up and I kind of researched everyone a little bit. And then I noticed that a lot of the records that I was listening to at that time, he had engineered uh, so I, I just liked the way that he had made some records sound
2: what were what were some of those records you're talking about
3: uh, a couple of the Jason Isabel records some of the newer ones there I think Nashville Sound or something more than Free or he may he may have done both and then some Lucero records I'm really into the sound of uh, especially uh, that last Lucero Among the Ghosts. I was a big fan of the sound of that record and then um, and he had done some some of those elvis re uh, reissues that they if people are giving you elvis records to kind of remaster redo then i think that kind of says something about you know i think you know what you're doing so i just wanted to work with this guy and th- didn't know anything about him and i remember walking in actually and rick from lucero plays piano on diamond western and i had met him previously a, a few times so as soon as I saw him, and then just met everyone, the nerves just kind of went away, and we were all there for the same reason. That was just to make a make a good record together, and we really did work as a as a as like a team. It wasn't Matt trying to be you know trying to make a record that suited him or one. It was just everyone together. Like, and I don't know. I hear a lot of stories about producers being kind of hard to work with but that couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to matt he really i don't know he was really concerned and worried about what i wanted not worried but just he just wanted to make sure that i was happy with everything and just the way that we approached it it worked out well and i don't know i don't i can't see myself making records with anyone else but him if i have it my way from here on out so (laughs) <laughs> that yeah, whether it's there or wherever, he's just—I don't know—I think he kind of he kind of brings out the best in me. I think in his own in his own way.
2: You mentioned Rick Steff, um, the piano yeah. player. I had to you know I had to ask about the piano honestly because it really stands out, like um, especially on the title track. I, I noticed just the tone, and you know. Um, I was wondering if, if it even was recorded in the room with, you know, the rest of the musicians or if that was cut somewhere else or how that was, because the sound just really felt very live. Maybe, you know, it felt like, you know, people say, it feel like, you feel like you're in the room listening to the recording. Like
3: the piano really felt that way for me. Uh, and the whole album is we record, we were there. That's how we recorded it. We did every song live. There are very few overdubs on that album Um, besides like vocals me doing some harmonies and then uh, Reba coming in and doing some harmonies but yeah it was us all in the room we were kind of set up just in a big circle and uh, that way we could all kind of just read off each other and just kind of went for it and uh, we, we did each song about three times and would go and listen to see which ones we had and pick pick the one that sounded best and and I think that's what made it flow very well. Is we didn't we didn't try too hard to I don't know. We didn't. It's not that we didn't try too hard. It's just, it just it just worked. I don't know. It was just kind of an easy thing for us to be in that room and uh, and play together. And yeah, but Rick was right. He was right to my right, so I looked over and he was. That guy's amazing. He was so passionate about the album. It <laughs> just amazes me how that dude works.
2: One of yeah. a kind. One of a kind.
3: 100 percent. I mean, that dude's something else. He's he's one of my favorite people in the world. Everyone that I met there was just it was it was everything. It was everything that I thought it wasn't going to be. Like I actually I, I went down there very anxious, had a lot of anxiety over all of it working with a producer and studio musicians. But like I said, they all just, they were so into just helping me make the best album that I could. And they, you could just tell that they were very sincere about all of it. And it, that's what made it work so easily. I think we were down there for eight days, somewhere around there. and We probably had the, the most of the songs recorded by like day five six and then i think we spent like two days or so adding some like harmonies or if someone wanted to fix a guitar part or something but for the most part it is a live album for sure and that's another thing that's what actually uh drew me to matt at first i think he was talking about recording a margo price album and talking about how he enjoyed recording live and i was like that's my that's that's the main thing for me. I, I just think you catch. For me, especially, I don't know. I just think recording live is just the best way to kind of get what I'm trying to put across. I don't want too many. Don't want it too produced. Not. I don't even mean sound wise. I just don't want too many extra things that weren't in that moment added. But. Yeah, it was good, but yeah, for the most part, that is a it's a live record with a few overdubs here and there. So you're definitely right about that. And Rick does add that piano adds so much to that record, and the organ and everything. It brought a sound and it yeah brought its own little sound to it that wasn't there in those songs prior. That uh that I'm very happy about.
2: You mentioned uh, having a you know a studio musician kind of environment you weren't necessarily excited about that when you perform out do you have a a set band or is it like a rotating cast of people
3: it's a set band it's been the same people now for a while i've had the uh, same bass player since the beginning which which is 2010 2011 i think towards the end of 2010 i think is when we started and then um i've had the same guitar player since probably 2013 and then the drummer has kind of revolved, but we, I've had the same one now for a while. So I've got the same guys, and I just a pet a pedal steel player. So we're a five-piece now when we go out. You have a fiddle player as well? Uh, we did. We don't anymore. Uh, we had a fiddle player and a piano player, and they just, uh, job restrictions and stuff yeah. like that really couldn't, uh, I don't think they could allow to put, you know, they couldn't put all of their time into music and all that. So... just kind of kind of scaled it back a little bit but hoping that when things kind of get back to normal you know i'd like to throw piano back in and fiddle as well because they're both on the album quite a bit so but we uh chad who's our pedal steel player does a pretty good job on mimicking some of that stuff so but yeah i have the same guys uh that we that i that i go out with and uh they were the guys i had before i went to the studio they were super supportive about everything and because uh, i was a worry as well you know what are they going to think that i'm going down you know and all this but they were i don't know i think everyone just has the same has the same end game or the same you know the goal was just a keep moving forward and they know that they're my band when we go out or when we play shows so i don't think there was any worries there i think i was worrying about it more than anyone else to be honest with you but yeah yeah. well that's thoughtful
2: of you to take into consideration and it sounds like you've got a good you know group of friends and and bandmates and everything you know ego not getting in the way and that sort of thing is difficult to achieve so um that's very cool well I can say for sure, you know, the world is um, looking forward to when you and your band can get back out there and play these songs and share, you know, what you've got with the, you know, the rest of us. So, man, yeah, Um, yeah, we're looking forward to, uh, you know, whenever that day comes. But right now, you know, just keep writing songs and and uh, putting the pen to paper and making it happen, man.
3: That's it, man. That's all I'm trying to do. If one good thing has come out of all of this, it's that I do have a, uh, I have a lot of new songs to give to the world. So I've had a lot of time to write. So uh, yeah, I'll just keep it up. So uh, I, yeah, I appreciate it, man. Can't wait to get back out and start playing shows for everybody.
2: Arlo McKinley, thank you very much for talking with us here at Diddy TV today. Get back in there and get your uh, tattoo.
3: Yeah, man, I'm gonna do that. Thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure we'll talk again down the line.
1: We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Arlo McKinley. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more from the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. Don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today.